You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Doug Robbins. Well, what a good day it is to worship with you guys, whether online or here in the cameo. And you know, before we get into the Bible study part of our service today, what do you say we stop and pray? Would you be comfortable to put a hand out towards me like you're praying for me, um, asking God to speak through me and use me and all voice of prayer on our behalf? God, we really just want to hear from you. Nobody needs to hear from me. They need to hear from, we, I need to hear, and my dear friends here need to hear from you. And so Jesus, would you please talk to us through your word today and, and whatever means you desire. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Well, uh, I brought a picture today of the carriage stone out in front of my house. Now, in case you don't know what a carriage stone is, it's this big stone, probably about as big as this table at least, in front of my house. And my house was built 124 years ago. It was built in uh, 1897. Like I said, 18, that's a 1897. I tell people sometimes, my house was built in the 90s, the 1890s, you know what I'm saying? So uh, the, the back in the day, people would have gone on their horse-drawn carriages up to my house. They would have stepped out of the carriage onto the carriage stone and then into the house. That's how old my house is. Like cowboys used to ride up on their horses, scrape their boots on the boot scraper, and then walk into the house. And I think about it sometimes. I think, what if my house could talk? The stories it could tell, the things that it's lived through since 1897. You know, my house has survived like two world wars. My house has survived the Great Depression. I mean, just amazing things that my house has lived through. And then after they built my house, there were some bricks left over, like there are, you know, back in the day. So I have this pile of like old bricks. And so this old brick here, you know, these bricks are like chipped, broken, aged, weathered. I mean, you think about how long this brick has been alive. And when I see the brokenness and imperfections of this brick, first of all, it kind of makes it interesting. But it reminds me of something. And it reminds me of the brokenness in my own life and the imperfections there. And as I think about my house and my own brokenness, I also think about some of you. Some have come over to my house and walked down the pathway and the walkway into my house sometimes to pray about brokenness in your own lives, like some of the world wars that you've lived through, you know, in your personal life, some of your personal, you know, great depressions. People have come in who have struggled with marriage issues or relationships. Some people have stayed the night, you know, just to get them through or get some encouragement, those personal world wars that you've lived through. And, you know, speaking of world wars, the icon for our series has been the bonsai tree because there was a bonsai tree I talked about a couple of weeks or last week that actually lived through the atomic bomb that ended world war, uh, you know, a world war. So it's like we're trying to be like the bonsai because we want to be resilient and last stay the test of time, like the bonsai, like my house that survived through world wars and the Great Depression and all this. And so we've learned this, these truths about how to be resilient from a little book called First Peter. We've been studying through it chapter by chapter, and I want to show you a resilient idea today. Last week, we talked about how to gain from pain. This week, we're saying reframe suffering into success. 
reframe suffering into success. In order to remember it, would you say it out loud with me with passion and conviction when I point to you? If you're online, when I point, say it out loud, sitting there in your couch in your pajamas. But here we go, ready? Reframe suffering into success. Okay, let's ratchet it up a notch. Ready, here we go. Reframe suffering into success. Good, that's what we wanna learn to do today from 1 Peter. I'm gonna show you four ways to do that that come straight from the text. Number one, crave milk. Number one, crave milk. Peter writes, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a, look at these next words, full experience of salvation. He says, he goes further, he says, cry out for this nourishment, see? Now, as you read that verse, you gotta understand that a lot of church people see milk as a bad thing. A lot of people in the Bible see milk as like a sign of immaturity, like a little baby sucking on a bottle, right? And the reason they do is not because of this passage, but because of another passage. It was by Paul, when Paul says, hey, you, you ought to be mature enough spiritually where you can eat meat now, but I'm having to give you a little bottle and drink milk, okay? That's, that's in another passage, okay? You need to erase that from your mind for just a minute, because Today we're in 1 Peter, and 1 Peter, milk is not a sign of immaturity, it's a sign of maturity. Look at the phrase there that's in verse 2 where Peter writes, grow into a full experience of salvation. Is a full experience of salvation, is that spiritual maturity or immaturity? It's maturity, right? So here in this text, when you crave the pure milk of the word, it's not a sign of being a spiritual baby. It's a sign that's going to lead you to growth into a full experience of salvation into maturity. Now, let me show you a couple of words in the scriptures that are used for the word of God. One is logos, which is the written word of God, like what we have in the Bible, and we hear from God in that way. But another one is kind of interesting. It's the word rhema. Say rhema with me. Ready? Here we go. Rhema. And that is like an, sometimes an instant personal speaking of God to us. It's a living word. Have you ever been reading the Bible and it just doesn't make sense to you, but then all of a sudden you get a rhema and it's like, boom, something makes sense to you. Sometimes you read the logos and God gives you a rhema, a living word for you. And, the, and let me show you the context of it. The, the context of the milk, what is the milk? To answer that question, you have to go back a couple of verses to First uh, Peter 1, 23 through 25. Look at it. It says, Peter writes, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding, what's that word? Word of God. Guess what Greek word it is. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you in business. So hang on. Just chill, okay? But the grass withers, the flower falls. But the what? Word of the Lord remains forever. So what's the word for word there? Is it logos? Rhema. Guess. Rhema. You're right. Okay. So rhema, a living word is what he's talking about that grows you. We are to crave these rhema words, personal words, sometimes instantaneous from Jesus straight to our hearts, and that's what leads us to maturity. Now, that's why we've said, hey, we've got this little reading plan. Some of you got this maybe last week. Some of you perhaps saw this in the lobby when you walked in. It's also posted online, PDF version, in case you want to read along. We're reading through the little New Testament book of 1 Peter together several times. How many of you read any of 1 Peter this past week? Anybody? Raise a hand. Say, this is where you participate. Raise your hand if you did. Okay. If you didn't, you need to feel all kinds of guilt. And Just kidding. I'm, I, don't feel. It's never too late to start. It's all 
all good, right? No guilt and shame here. You know, if you read, if you start the plan, when we start the series, you'll read through the book seven times because the Bible is not something to just be checked off that you did it. It's something to be savored like a fine glass of wine or something really great food, you know, an amazing taco. You just let it sit in your mouth for a while because it's so freaking awesome, right? So that's the way the Word of God is. You want to read it over and over and over again. And that's what we're going to do here with First Peter. But look at number two. You reframe suffering into success when you connect with living stones. And I got this from verse five where Peter writes, and you are living stones. And he uses that word very precisely, very intentionally. Living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Now, in order to understand what was going through Peter's audience mind, I need to take you to Jerusalem just for a minute by way of pictures. And as we go there, you can see on on the upper left-hand corner picture, I'm standing at the end of what's called a Herodian stone. This was a stone that was laid to build the temple that was in existence during the time of Jesus in Jerusalem. In the upper right-hand picture, you can see we're underground in a tunnel looking at one of these Herodian stones. And that particular stone is 46 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. It weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of 415 tons. That is a big stone. And in fact, scholars don't even know how they were able to cut that stone in the quarry and get it to lay it to build the temple. How do you even do that? I mean, they didn't have modern cranes back in those days to move these kinds of things. And so can you imagine what the people felt about the temple? The temple to Jesus' Jesus audience and to Peter's audience wasn't just another building that goes up and comes down and goes, this was like going to be there forever. And it's like, you can't break this thing down. This thing is massive. These 415 ton stones individually were placed there to build this temple. And so they're thinking this thing's going to last forever. Now, of course, if you have read your history a little bit, you'd know that in 70 AD, the Romans totally jacked that temple and knocked it down, see? But if you go to Israel today, look in the bottom left-hand corner, you can see the Western Wall. Now, those stones are not Herodian stones. They were added later in the Byzantine period. And you can see in the little picture in the bottom right-hand corner, this guy, he's writing his prayer, and he stuffs it there between two of the stones in, at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And what that shows us is in Peter's day, as well as to a degree our day, there are a lot of people that see their worship of God as having to go to the building. You follow me? Like religion says it's stone on t- stone to build a temple that you have to go to because that's where God is. But what Peter is saying is something different. He's saying, hey, As broken as you may be, it's one broken Christian on top of another broken Christian, and that forms the new temple. You and I, together in relationship, interconnectedness, are the new temple. See, now we own a building, right? We bought the Cameo Theater. We fix it up. We own it as a church and everything. But it's not about, God is not, doesn't live in this building. God lives in you and I. And the only reason we have a, a building It's just a tool so that you and I can come together. We can come together in interconnected relationship and experience God. And if you ever heard people say stuff like, you know, I want God, but I just don't like being around people. I don't want to be in relationship. And that nothing is further from the truth of the scripture. 
you want a different God if you want God without relationship with people because we experience God in relationship with other people. We're like these stones, these living stones stacked on top of each other, you know? And so there are people above me that I'm supporting and there are people below me that are supporting, loving, and serving me. And if you pull one brick from the wall, one living stone, not dead stone, but living stone out of the wall, it crumbles because we're interdependent. Now, Andy Stanley wrote a really great little book called Deep and Wide. And in that little book, he talks about these interconnected relationships that you and I are as living stones together. And he calls them providential relationships. And he says there are two things that make up these providential relationships. Um, It's when we hear from God through someone else and when we see God in someone else that necessitates relationships and tribes right so um he says there are four ways that we can foster these providential relationships we play together isn't that great we we bond when we play together right you played sports with people on a team you bond with each other right you eat together i love that part right remember how we always say tribes eat we eat every chance we get you know there are vegans and then there are freegans like pastors everywhere there's free food you'll find a pastor i'm sure you did that so then number three we serve together we serve the poor we serve each other we serve our community and stuff like that but number four we suffer together and suffering together is the deepest level the highest level of connection. That's where real love takes place. You know that someone loves you when they're willing to suffer with you and suffer for you. Suffering teaches you how to really love. So real love changes bedpans. Real love is present in the hospital when you're dying. Real love is willing to suffer. And if you would like to connect with other people that are trying to live these four things out, I want you to go to the Connect Tent outside with Joe Mena or one of his volunteers. If you're watching online, you can go to citytribe.church slash tribes because we want you to get in connection with other living stones that are dependent on each other that keep you to, you know, how you get to be a bonsai tree that lives through the personal and spiritual and emotional atomic bombs. You connect with others in community, in a tribe. So look at number three, walk in your identity. Now, a lot of you have been around church or whatever, and you know, like, I know I'm supposed to live my identity in Christ, like what you live up to, who you believe you are. And so if you believe your identity in Christ, then you'll, you're more apt to live up to that. And that comes from First Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter writes, you're a chosen people. Your royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, look at this next part, you can show others the meanness of God. I said that wrong, didn't I? You show others the goodness of God. That's our role. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no what? Identity. As a people, now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So there are a couple of things 
that Peter shows us about our identity. A lot of you know that you're supposed to live up to your identity in Christ, but you're like, what is my identity in Christ? Well, there's a lot of it in the New Testament. I'm going to show you two today that are in this particular text. Is it our identity is as foreigners, and it's as royal priests. Foreigners and royal priests. Okay, would you turn to your neighbor and just tell them you're a royal priest? Not you're a royal pain. You're a royal priest. You're a royal priest. You're a royal priest, too. You're a royal priest right up there. Good, good. Well, that was fun. It doesn't take that long, by the way. We're, we're done now, so we can go to the next thing. So we're a royal priest. And also, look at, the, look at the next verse. See what he says, 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and as what? Foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. So it's like we have visas to be here, but we live like foreigners. Have you ever seen someone that you know is from out of town and you're kind of like, hey, you know, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> have you ever gone somewhere and you, know, you travel to another country or whatever and you're walking down there and everybody looks at you funny because they know you're not from around there. You're a foreigner. You're not from their town, their place. And that's the way we live. We're different than other people. And there's this one ancient source that writes about how different the Christ followers were in the early church. Let me show it to you. This source says they have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass all the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. So the early Christ followers were described as people that lived as citizens as heaven. They were different of heaven. They were different. They didn't fit into the categories of the day, if you know what I mean. You know, today we have categories, right? Like particularly in politics, there's the conservatives and there's the liberals or whatever. And so if you look at ancient sources, they would tell you that the Christ followers seemed very liberal because they didn't go to the gladiator games or support the bloodthirsty entertainment. That would be considered uh, liberal in that day. But yet they were considered conservative by the culture because they uh, were against abortion. And then they were considered liberal because they had women leaders and they were radically for the poor. But then again, they were considered conservative because they didn't practice sex outside their marriage beds. And then they were considered liberal because they mixed the races together. But then they were considered conservative because they believed that only Jesus or only Christ is God. They were not into polytheism where you worship more than one God, and the same is true today that we, if we really follow Jesus, we don't fit clearly into either of the two political options or categories. We're for the right wing. We're for the left wing. We're for the whole bird around here, aren't we? And isn't it great to have a place to come where you love people who perhaps voted different than you did. Isn't that great? Is anybody besides me happy about being able to get away from all the division in our world and coming here and having people that you love even though you disagree with them, right? So um, we're foreigners in our culture today. And wherever you go in the world, whether you, you know, whatever country, you're gonna find some things that that culture 
loves about Jesus' teachings and some things that they don't like about Jesus' teachings. So, for example, if you go to the Eastern world, the Eastern part of the world, they are very much about the New Testament teachings on family. You know, the importance of the family, you know, husbands and wives and, you know, moms and dads and kids, all that. But they don't like the part about turn the other cheek and forgiveness. And here in the Western world, in the United States and Western Europe, we, we love the part about forgiveness and tolerance of other people. But we don't like the part about sexual purity in the Bible. You know, a lot of people in the West think, oh, the Bible is so repressive and so regressive when it comes to sex. But here's what I want you to understand, is that if you choose to really do it, to really walk in the ways of Jesus, you will at some point in some way suffer for it. And here's the thing that you got to know, is that the culture, when they see you living out the ways of Jesus, you will get the microaggressions. They'll say, oh, one of those repressive Christians because they're trying to stay pure inside their marriage bed, right? They'll lob those microaggressions. They'll vilify you. They'll misunderstand you. And look, if you assimilate with the world and the culture, you won't suffer at all. Some people choose to, some Christians choose to attack the culture. Other Christians, rather than attacking, they just withdraw from the culture and stay away from it. But look, if you attack or you withdraw, the very people that need you the most will not have a royal priest in their life to show them the goodness of God. So what Christ followers do is we engage with the culture. We love the people of the culture. We serve the culture all the while we expect to suffer at some point. We expect it. And it's because Jesus showed us by example. Look at verse 21. For God called you, Peter writes, to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. And by the way, before I read verse 23, I want you to understand that everyone should read verse 23 before they post on social media. Look at this. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of Facebook. No. He left his case in the hands of God, who always, 100% of the time, judges fairly. That's what he did. Is anybody on board with doing that, living like that? Right on. Straight up. So I really like the way Mother Teresa worded this, because talking about it, someone who was well-known, and when you're well-known like that, people, you know, lob a lot of verbal bombs at you. And here's what she said. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Isn't that the truth right on? So that's the way we want to live. So let's go to number four. 
in order to reframe suffering into success, accept, or I could have said, stand on the cornerstone, which we know is Jesus. And Peter writes about this in verse eight when he said, and he is the stone that the builders rejected. He's the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word or God's logos, the written word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. That verse has a little edge to it, doesn't it? And it's speaking to people who in their heads and their hearts are choosing not to believe in Jesus, not for any real intellectual struggles with the existence of Jesus, which by the way, we can fully handle in Jesus 101 class this afternoon at 2.30. They don't do it for any logical reason, but they choose not to believe and follow Jesus because they wanna do what they don't wanna do and they don't, they don't want anyone to tell them how to live. And you know how I know that? Because that's exactly what I used to do. That's exactly how I used to think. I didn't want Jesus messing with my partying. I didn't want Jesus messing with the way I wanted to live and the stuff I wanted to do. And I thought of every reason I could under the sun to not believe in him or follow him. And in that case, people who give him the stiff arm like that, Jesus becomes the stone that crushes them he becomes a stumbling block to a lot of people. And if you come to a place of humility and open-mindedness, and you're willing to allow Jesus to be your cornerstone, the foundation on which you stand, you kind of first have to acknowledge or understand the foundation you're on now, the cornerstone you're standing on now. And that would be a realization for a lot of people. And a lot of people think they're standing on the cornerstone of Jesus, but actually they're self-deceived and they're standing on something else. See, a lot of people are going to be actually standing on the foundation of their morality. And they think, I'm okay as long as I'm a good moral person. I mean, after all, I'm much better than Hitler was, right? I'm a pretty good person, and so I'm standing on that. I feel good about myself because I'm a moral person, and someday God's going to have to let me into heaven because I'm a good moral person. Other people are going to stand on things like their career, and they think, you know, as long as my career's doing well, I mean, I'm not rich, but I'm making make a good living, you know, enough to have a decent life. I've got insurance and internet connection, you know, so my career's going good. I'm good. See, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a productive member of society. I'm sure Jesus is going to let me into heaven someday. It makes me feel good about who I am because I'm a productive member of society. And so for some people, their career is their foundation. For other people, it's their family. You know, they think, well, I can get through anything as long as I've got my family with me and I love my family. You know, by the way, a career is a good thing and a family is a good thing, but family is not designed to be your foundation for eternity. And some people, it's their achievements, what they can achieve in this world. And I've seen the Achievement Foundation give way in people's lives. It falters at some point. I used to be a youth pastor, and I would see these kids that when they were in high school, they got straight A's at the top of their class. But what happened was they would go to college, and all of a sudden the A's turned to B's, and there were people smarter I seen kids that were great at sports in high school. They were the best players on the team. And they get to college and can't make the team. And what happens is their foundation goes out from under them. You ever wonder why 
college is the time where people are the most susceptible to suicide because a lot of kids get to college and they realize they're not all that and their foundation is rocked. And it causes them to take their own lives, see? So when you allow Jesus to be your cornerstone, your foundation, he's stable. No matter what happens in your family life, in your career, in your achievements, He's stable the whole way. And a lot of us struggle. Our foundation goes awry because of our own sin and our own mistakes and our own dysfunctional behavior. And look at what Jesus, Peter tells us Jesus did about it. It's in verse 24. Peter says that he, Jesus, personally carried. He didn't delegate it to someone else, but Jesus personal carried our sins not in a U-Haul, in his body. It was in his own body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And then that last part of the verse, by his wounds, you are healed. It can be translated healed and saved. By his wounds, you are healed and saved. And his wounds cause us to win. His suffering leads us to success. Now, remember the little bricks that I showed you earlier that came from my house, and I look at them and I see the brokenness, and it reminds me of my brokenness. Well, a couple of years ago, I had a friend who's a designer and a creative, and I gave him a pile of these leftover bricks from my old 124-year-old house, and I had him create something out of it. He created a walkway in my backyard. And if you look at the picture that we're going to put up on screen, you'll see that the designer was able to create something beauty out of leftovers. You ever feel like a leftover in this world? And he was also able to take some of these bricks and some of them he had to cut them further and carve them up a little bit more so that they would fit in their place on that walkway. And so because of what was in the mind of this great designer, this great creative. Now there's a beautiful walkway made out of repurposed stones in my backyard that we can walk on to go home. And look, that's what you and I are. We may feel like these broken and chipped up bricks, don't we, some of us? But when we come together as living stones, the master designer, the creator, Jesus transforms us and makes us a walkway where people can go home. No matter what I've gone through in my life during a particular day, when I go down that walkway and walk into my home, I'm at peace. I'm at home. And that's what Jesus decided to do with you and I. To change our suffering into success. He reframed it. And so as we worship, I want you to think about your own suffering right now. And I want to ask you, would you be willing, even if you don't believe in Jesus, would you be open-minded to hear what's called a rhema word from him, where he would speak to you personally today? You know, can I tell you, Jesus speaks to our thoughts. He's a lot more advanced than we are. And it's kind of old school for Jesus to try and speak with language. You know why? It's almost like telepathy. He can speak from heart to heart. 
He has that ability. Have you ever been around someone so long you knew him so well, you didn't have to say anything, but you knew what each other were thinking? My wife can just give me a look. I know what, I know what the girl's thinking. And that's, Jesus can communicate everything that way with his kids. That's why Paul says you got to take every thought captive. He says, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because that is the space where Jesus speaks to your heart is through your thoughts. And so don't be expecting an audible voice. That's just one way he can do it. He's far too creative to just speak to us and connect with us in one way. But you know, there are other voices out there that are fighting for your attention too, right? So if you got the little card that you you know, if you got that, pull it out and you can see the difference between Jesus' voice and other voices based on the scriptures. Let me roll through it real quickly before we listen for him. See, Jesus' voice is always going to be coming to you in love and bringing life where the other voices are going to bring fear and lack. You know what you call it when you focus on what you lack? You're a lackey. And that's what the enemy voices want you to think. Jesus' voice brings conviction. Oh, he convicts us of, of sin, but it's always for good. You know, his kindness leads us to repentance, the Bible says. So when he speaks conviction to you, he's not trying to hurt you. But the other voices speak condemnation. They condemn you. You ever hear those voices of condemnation? And then Jesus' voice is always going to bring salvation, help. And the, the other voices are always going to bring shame. You ever feel shame in your life? That's not the voice of Jesus. Jesus' voice is always going to bring freedom and joy to your life. Freedom and joy, but the other voices are always going to say, you're not enough. You ever feel like that? I'm not a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough dad. I'm not a good enough student. I'm not good enough at work. I'm not a good enough Christian. Is he good? That's not Jesus' voice at all. So Jesus is going to bring love and life. And so with this in mind, I want you to just close your eyes for just a minute and I'm going to ask you some questions. And remember, the, Jesus is going to speak to you in your mind most of the time. And so I, I want you to just kind of hang on to the first thought that comes to your mind when I ask these questions. And, and actually, we're going to ask these questions to Jesus. It's not me to you. It's not you to me. It's us to Jesus. Here's the first question. Jesus, do you love me? First thought that comes to your mind, Jesus, do you love me? How many of you just got an answer of some sort? Just show me your hand real quick. Show me your hand, good. Next question. First thought, Jesus, am I your child? Jesus, am I your child? First thought that comes to your mind, raise your hand if you got a thought on that. So now with your eyes closed, in your mind, I want you to think about a time in your life when you felt the most joy and happiness. The time in life when you felt the most joy and happiness. And when it comes to you, just show me your hand real quick. You got that time in your mind? Good, bunch of us. Now let's ask Jesus another question. Jesus, what are the details you want me to see in that memory? Jesus, what are 
the details you want me to see in that memory. Maybe it was the sights of the trees or the ocean, the smell of the ocean breeze or the people that were there, the food that was involved, the wood panel station wagon or the car that was there, whatever. Jesus, what are the details you want me to remember about that experience? Raise your hand if you're getting some of those details that are coming through your mind right now. A bunch of you, good. Now let's ask Jesus another question. Jesus, how are you healing me with that memory today? Jesus, how are you healing me with that memory today? Receive from him love and life. Receive freedom and joy, salvation, healing. And come from that memory saying, Jesus, I'm choosing to make you my cornerstone, my foundation. And so as we stand to worship here in just a second, we're going to open up the front and the back where there are carpets in the cafe, video cafe, or at home. Where if we want to make the declaration that Jesus, you are the Lord of all in my life. And Jesus, I want to thank you for these thoughts that you're bringing healing in my life. Then I'm inviting you to come and kneel and pray if that would be helpful for you, like I'm going to do. So Jesus, we invite you to further speak to us and heal us in the midst of proclaiming and making commitments by stepping out in faith and kneeling and saying, you are my cornerstone and my foundation and nothing else. So let's stand together and you come and kneel and pray as you're prompted by the Spirit as we sing and proclaim Jesus today.
stop and we worship you and we say, no matter what storms we're going through, no matter what storms politically in this country or pandemics or world wars or personal problems or loss of a job or whatever it may be, is that you're going to continue to be Lord of all. You're continuing to be this strong foundation that we can stand upon that will absolutely test, stand the test of time. And we don't want to be offended by you, Jesus, but we embrace you and stand upon you, trusting completely in what you've accomplished for us on the cross. Can't thank you enough. As we continue in prayer, perhaps some of us have come to realizations of, you know, I, I thought I was trusting in Jesus, but then Jesus showed me through a picture that perhaps I'm standing on something else to make myself feel okay. And I've made a choice today to stand on Him. And as we continue in prayer, perhaps earlier when we asked the question, of Jesus, you didn't ask it of me, you asked of Jesus. Jesus, am I your child? And some of you heard no. And the reason you heard no is because Jesus is very straightforward. But he wasn't doing it to hurt you. He was doing it to draw you to himself and adopt you as his kid, as his daughter, his son. And if you want to be adopted to him right now in this moment, there's no like magical prayer, but from your heart to his, just say something like this. Jesus, I choose to believe that by your stripes, I'm healed. The best I understand it, Jesus, I'm saying to you, I believe that when you died on the cross, you took in your own body the punishment for my sin. And I choose to enter your life and allow you to enter mine willingly. Thank you for coming in. And as we continue in prayer, there's something special that's about to happen. Because we're going to re-ask that question. I want you to go with the first thought. Jesus, am I your child? Yes, 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 a million times. Yes, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done in our hearts today. So the best we know how, we stand on you and walk with you as like the boss and the Lord because you're so good. We love being a part of what you're doing in your kingdom. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen, amen. Will you guys go ahead and take a load off? We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.